Please turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 today as we continue going verse by verse. I've entitled this today, The Mystery is Made Clear. And this is part one because next week links up to that and really is a continuation of this passage. Now, let me say today, some of you might think, well, I wish I could go to Bible college or seminary because I'd like to get some of those courses, some of those ology courses in, you know, like uh, theology or Christology or pneumatology or soteriology. Well, we're doing a study in ecclesiology today, and uh, that's what this message and next week is about. It's about the church. I'm getting ahead of myself. You'll get it as we get through. Remember that word ecclesiology, though, okay? Now, when people talk about the church, what do most people think about? Buildings. They think about the buildings. That is something that has evolved over time. In the New Testament times, there were no churches, okay, early, early on. There were no churches. People met wherever they could meet. They met in homes. They met, you know, out in fields. They, they just met a lot of different places. And uh, some of them had to be in secret because of persecution and so forth. But it wasn't until later when the persecution subsided that they started building these structures to where the church would come and meet, Did you catch what I just said? Structures to where the church would come and meet. Over time, those buildings started to be called the church, but those buildings are not the church. This building is not the church. This building is where the church meets. You might say, I'm totally confused now. Well, keep listening. Think you'll get it. See, this has developed over time, but it's really inaccurate. Now, let's define this. The word church in the Bible is the Greek word ekklesia, ecclesiology, okay? We're doing a study on the church today, doctrine, ecclesiology, ekklesia. The word church means ekklesia, or ekklesia means the church. It means a called out assembly, called out. What does that mean? That you're shouting at people to get them to be a part? No. Called out means that When you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, as a believer in Christ, you're called out of the world system. Now, our ministry is to all the people of the world, but God has called us out of the world system, out of the domain and the environment, you might say, of Satan's domain. And so we're called out of that. We're called out of the world to himself. That's why the Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Why? Because we're Christians and we have been called out of the world. And that's what the word ecclesia means, okay? So let's just break this down. The first point, we got three major points today. The first one is this. We see the individuals who make up the church. Now remember, the church is not the building. The church meets in the building. The church are the called out ones, those who belong to Christ. And so who makes up the church? Well, here you go. Lost people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their payment for sin and therefore are no longer lost. They're saved. Who makes up the church? People of the world who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. They started lost like we all do. They understood the gospel. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now they're saved. They're no longer lost. 
These are the people that make up the church. Now, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. We covered last week verses 1 through 10. Notice verse 8. It says this. Now, how are you saved? How are you saved from hell to heaven? How do you become a Christian? You might say, well, that's easy. I was born into a Christian family. No, that doesn't make you a Christian. You may have been influenced by Christianity, but that doesn't make you a Christian any more than a child born in a garage makes you a car. It just doesn't work that way. God has no grandchildren. Every person who is a believer in Jesus Christ, every person who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior is a child of God. Not everybody in the world is a child of God. Understand this. Understand this. You might say, well, I thought all people are children of God. No, only those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Everybody's a potential child of God. Everybody is a creation of God. But not everybody is a child of God. Only those who have believed on his name, John chapter 1, verse 12. Only those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, let me explain it to you. What does all this mean, trusted Christ as your Savior? Here's how it was made clear to me. Therefore, I think it will be clear to you. Let this hand represent you and me. Let this wallet represent our sin. We're all sinners. Everybody in the world is a sinner, including me. Yet God loves us, the Bible says. God hates our sin, but he loves us. Now, understand this. Heaven is a perfect place. No sin in heaven. Therefore, for me to get into heaven, I have to be sinless in the eyes of God. Yet I have a problem. I'm a sinner, according to Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, our sin separates us from God. You cannot get to heaven with your sin. You have to be sinless to get in. We've got a problem. Not only that, but the Bible says if we die with our sin, we will be lost forever in hell. See, friends, what takes away sin? The only thing that takes away sin would be a death payment. Now, if we pay for our sin, we'll be doing it forever in hell. That is not what God wants for us, though. He wants us to live with him forever in heaven. Now, people then come up with this idea, and they're well-meaning usually. They'll say this, well, okay, then the way I'll take care of my sin problem is I'll do good works. I'll go get baptized. I'll give money. I'll go to church every week. I'll uh, be a good person. I'll be a good employer or be a good husband, wife, mom, dad. That certainly is going to help me get in to bake Christmas cookies. Now, I don't want to discourage you from doing that, but it's not going to get you into heaven. Look, there's nothing we can do to earn our way. Remember, it isn't a matter of good works that get you into heaven. It's a matter of getting rid of your sin that gets you into heaven. Now watch this. Because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves, God sent his son, as we have seen several times this morning already, this hand representing Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God. God sent his son into the world. And when Jesus came, lived his life, he took our sin upon himself. He was born to die. He took our sin upon himself and he made the complete payment for our sin, leaving us nothing to pay for. And he came back from the dead to prove it was done. And the Bible tells us that if we will put our faith in him, that he did that for us, if we will believe in him that he made that payment and paid for all of our sin, he gives us everlasting life. 
The payment he made is good on our behalf. When we trust Christ, all of our sin is taken away. And God will give you everlasting life. See, we're saved by something called grace. Grace means undeserved favor or kindness. You know, look up here, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And here on your sheet, it says, For by grace are ye saved. You notice it doesn't say, For by works are you saved. For by faithfulness are you saved. No. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's not by your works. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our good works will not save us. It's only the grace of God that saves us and is through faith in Jesus Christ, believing that when he died on the cross, he paid for all of your sins. All your sins, all of them, past, present, and future. When you trust Christ to save you, the payment he made is good on your behalf. All your sins are taken away. Even the ones you haven't done yet, he's paid for them. Remember, when he died, it was, what, 2,000 years ago? If he paid for any of them, he paid for all of them. All he's asking you to do is believe in him that he did that for you, and he'll give you as a free gift everlasting life. Now, is it good to live a good life? Yes. Is it good to live a godly Christian life? Yes, it is. But it won't get you to heaven. The only thing that gets you to heaven is what Jesus Christ has done for you. More about that in a few minutes. But you notice this, what makes up the church? Individuals who make up the church are those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, as their payment for sin. And you notice again in verse 9, it says, Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, secondly, we see two groups who make up the church. So not only do you need to be a believer to be part of the body of Christ, which is another name for the church, there are two groups that make up the church. Now, here's where it gets interesting, and a lot of people do not understand this. A lot of people have never learned this. The church, the body of Christ. Now, when we say church, we're not talking about a denomination. We're not talking about a building. We're talking about a body of people who make up this organism, and that is what it is, called the church, the body of Christ. So two groups make up the church. Saved Jews and saved Gentiles. You might say anybody else. That's everybody. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. And you're only part of the church if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So the ones who make up a church are all those who are born again, who have put their faith in Christ as their payment for sin. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. You might say, well, I'm a Gentile, but I know a Jewish person. Does that mean they stop being a Jew? When they got saved, that's a question a lot of people ask. The answer to that is no. They're still a Jew, but now they're a saved Jew. The apostles were saved Jews. Peter, James, John, they were all Jewish. But Paul, they were saved Jews. Saved, what do you mean saved? From hell to heaven. These are the ones who make up the church. Now, Starting in verse 11, Paul begins explaining this thing called the mystery of the church. And it starts in chapter 2, verse 11, verse 11, and it goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 12. We don't have time to cover it all today. That's why this is part one. A word is going to come up, though, and it's an important word. It's the word mystery. Now, we think of a mystery as something that nobody can figure out. That's not what the Bible means by the word 
mystery. Let me tell you ahead of time, we're really going to spend time on this next week in Ephesians chapter 3, particularly verse 6, but it's very clear that the church, remember the church is made up of Jew and Gentile who have put their faith in Christ as Savior. The church is the mystery. What makes up the church, that is the mystery. Now, starting in verse 11, Paul explains the mystery of the church. Verse 11 says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, he's talking to Gentiles, they're the ones who made up the church at Ephesus. Most of them had trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and now they're part of the body of Christ. Most of them were Gentiles. He says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now that sounds a lot like the first five verses of chapter two, doesn't it? See, some of the importance of this passage is lost in people's minds because of the passing of time. Understand this. In the early church age, in other words, when the church began, again, we're not talking about buildings. We're talking about the body of Christ made up of Jew and Gentile. When the church began, the Jewish people were the predominant group because Acts chapter 2 They were Jews who came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, okay? And when Acts chapter 2 took place, and that was a miraculous event that took place there, thousands believed in Christ as their Messiah. But the ones who believed in him were Jews who believed in him. So the church did not start out as Gentile. We got this idea today in our society, well, okay, the synagogue is for the Jews today, or the temple, and the church, or the church we go to, you know, is for the Gentiles. No, the body of Christ is made up of Jew and Gentile. The bonding factor is that they have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And this issue of Jews and Gentiles making one body is the mystery when the Bible talks about it here. But remember, in the early church age, the Jews were the predominant group. Now, understand this. This did not change overnight. Yes, Gentiles started getting saved, but this was a very difficult time in the mind of the Jewish people. God had been dealing with the Jews for ages. Gentiles, like you and me, we were considered dogs, Dogs, you might say, wait a minute, I'm offended by that. I resemble that remark. I mean, resent that remark. Gentiles were considered dogs. But when the Jews rejected Jesus Christ, generally speaking, that is what they did when he came. The vast majority of them did not accept him as their Messiah, as their Savior. And the church age came in, beginning in Acts chapter 2, the door opened to the Gentiles. And in fact, as time went on, it turned more and more to the Gentiles. This is clear from Romans chapter 11, but it's also clear 
from as you just read through the book of Acts, which is God's history book of the early church. And you see how things transition from Jews mainly to mainly Gentiles. Now, when we talk about the Bible word mystery, it means a truth not revealed until the proper time. You might say, what's the difference between that and the way we think of a mystery today? We think of a mystery today as something you can't figure out. You hear some facts, you can't figure it out, you scratch your head, you try to figure it out, you can't figure it out. That's not the Bible concept of mystery. The Bible concept of mystery is God has this truth and he's not revealing it until the right time. When he reveals it, you can understand it. You're not scratching your head unless it's the early church age and you're a Jew because they didn't understand what he did. But it wasn't that he was hiding it. It's just that they lacked understanding of it. And so we see this transitioning as time went on. The mystery is something formerly unknown, but now revealed. It isn't that it went on for a long time and people were frustratingly trying to figure it out. No, listen carefully today. The church did not exist except in the mind of God. Physically speaking, the church did not exist. In human history, the church did not exist until Acts chapter 2. People had no idea about the church in ages past. This is particularly clear and also critical when you start reading the Word of God. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying here. Even the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, and then John to an extent. The church, listen, is not in the Old Testament. That idea is being resurrected today, and it is a false teaching. The church is not in the Old Testament. The word church is used two times in the book of Matthew, and no other time in any of the other Gospels. So when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and mainly John, okay, John is there's some transitioning language in there because it came later and it's directed to Gentiles. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the church is hardly mentioned at all. But many times what people do is they say, okay, there's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament. The Old Testament's for the Jew, the New Testament is for the Christian. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very Jewish. The church wasn't an issue. So when Jesus talked about things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and mainly in John, or also mostly when he talked about things in John, he wasn't talking about the church in the sense of these are truths that the church is going to get. No, he's talking about directing it towards Jewish people. And so when you read prophecy in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's not talking about, and it talks about Jesus coming back. It's not talking about the rapture of the church because the church had not been revealed yet. It's talking about Jesus coming back at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. See, this is very, very important. And this is teaching something which I'll talk more about next week called dispensationalism. You might say, well, wait a minute, though. Jesus used the term in Matthew. Yes, he used the term, but listen, he didn't explain it. He used it twice, but he did not explain it. 
But in the days of the apostles, the Lord brought something new on the scene, and that began in Acts chapter 2. Now, people make the error today, and it's a very popular error. And by the way, that error is starting to grow once again. They'll say this, well, when the Jews rejected Christ, God rejected the Jews. That is false. God never rejected the Jews. What he did was he, it's kind of, if you think of your stove and you're cooking something on the main burner, okay, what do you do sometimes? Sometimes you say, okay, that's going good. I'll take that off of the main burner and I'll put it back here for a while and let me do something else. That is what he did with the church. God knew what he was going to do, but it wasn't in existence. God was dealing with the Jews. The Jews, by and large, rejected Jesus Christ as Savior. He basically took the Jews and he says, okay, you know what? I'm going to do something new. I'm going to put you as a people group on the back burner for a while, and I'm going to deal with something. I'm going to whip up something else, for lack of a better term. And that thing is called the church. And the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. But remember this. He didn't take the Jews off the burner and throw them away. He said, I'm going to deal with that later on. Now, folks, the time that Jesus is going to deal with the church is coming very, or with Israel is coming very soon. Maybe I got my words mixed up. Hopefully you're following me in that. Romans chapter 11 Verse 1, it says this, I say then, hath God cast away his people, referring to the Jews? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite, a Jew, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. This is Paul talking about himself as a Jew. But he was a saved Jew. And his ministry was to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also you notice I said also to the Greek? Why? Because the church is made up of Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. The Jews are not forsaken or done away with. They will be focused on again after the church is taken out of the world at the rapture of the church. Now we see the stage being set by the very fact that after having been scattered for some 2,000 years as a people... They did, the Jews did not lose their national identity. Why? Because God said they're not going to. And what has he done? He has brought the Jewish people back to the land of Israel after being scattered for all that time, thousands of years. He's brought them back, and soon he's going to be bringing them and putting them back on the front burner again, so to speak, and dealing with them once again. But he's not going to deal with them in a uh, very focused way. Maybe that's not the best term, but you understand. Prominent way until the church is taken out of the world. And that will take place at the rapture. Now, the Jews are back in the land. They've been there since 1948. And more and more you see them as the focus of the world. Now, let me say this. When we think of the world, we think of the center of the world, we think of the United States of America because of our prominence for so long as a nation. Listen, the United States of America has never been the focus, the main focus of God. If you talk about where would the center of the world be according to the plan and the word of God, it would be the nation of Israel, 
not the United States of America. Now, we've been blessed because we've blessed them, but they are going to be the focus once again, and they are back in the land. Now, back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which was called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. See, circumcision, physical circumcision, was a mark of the Jew. When it says the uncircumcision, that's referring to Gentiles. The circumcision refers to the Jewish people. The Jews were and are the chosen ones of God. They were the ones they were set apart to God. When we talk about chosen, it means God chose them to do a work in the world. It's not talking about chose them to heaven and not to hell. And that it's not talking about that. That's Calvinism. That's false. Verse 12, that at that time, ye, the Gentile believers here, at Ephesus, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes or at one time were far off, are made nigh, made near by the blood of Christ. So let's review very quickly. We see the individuals who make up the church. Those lost people who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. We see the two groups that make up the church. Save Jews and save Gentiles. And now we also see, number three, we see the head of the church here in our text. Who is that? Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself. It is not Peter. Uh, If you're a Catholic, I'm not trying to offend you, but friend, it's not the Pope. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. This is what the Bible teaches. The church and true salvation is all about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. It has nothing to do with any denomination or any other person. It has to do with Jesus Christ. Very important that we realize that. By the way, it doesn't have to do with Peter either, as many, well, Peter is the head of the church. No, Peter was never, ever the head of the church. Can I tell you that? He was a leader in the church. The head of the church has always been Jesus Christ. Peter said it himself, as we will see. So we see the head of the church, Jesus Christ himself. But let me say a few things about that. First is this, his shed blood was the payment for our sin. We see that in verse 13. You who are sometimes far off are made near, made nigh by the blood of Christ. See, we must have a payment for sin. Jesus was uniquely qualified to be our Savior. He had to be perfect, sinless, but he also had to be a man. Jesus, being himself in heaven, did not pay for sin, just being himself in heaven. We needed a substitute. We needed somebody, if we were going to have somebody pay for our sins for us, we needed somebody who would have to be perfect because if they weren't perfect, they'd be a sinner. And if they were a sinner, they'd have to pay for their own sin. So we needed somebody without sin. It is through the blood of Christ and the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection that all mankind's sins have been paid for, making it possible for all people to be saved and to be in one 
body of Christ. One body of Christ. But a person must put their faith in Christ alone for salvation for that to be realized. You're in Ephesians. Look at chapter 1 and verse 7. Referring to Jesus, it says this, "...in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins." according to the riches of his grace. You notice we have redemption. We have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. They sang that. We have redemption, how? Through his blood, his death payment on the cross. But not only his shed blood was the payment for our sin, we see in verses 14 through 15, he is our peace. Verse 14, for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Peace, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. On what merit? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator said this about verse 14. Said this, Christ not only made peace between sinners and God, Romans 5, 1, but he also made peace between Jews and Gentiles. He took sinful Jews and sinful Gentiles and through his cross made a new man, the church, unquote. That's exactly what Jesus did. And that is the church. That is the body of Christ. Verse 15. So remember, he's our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hostility, the hatred, even the law of commandments contained in ordinance, ordinances for to make in himself of twain, of two, one new man, and so making peace. The issue, though, is that through the work of Christ on the cross, Jesus has broken down the middle wall. Now, the middle wall is the Mosaic law, the commandments of the Old Testament, and in that, the Ten Commandments, of course, included in that. But in that, this wall was Jewish. And this was the thing that was between the Jews and Gentiles. The laws what separated the Jews from the Gentiles. And so this, this thing of the law, the Mosaic law, which, by the way, there's not just 10, there's 613. Jesus abolished that wall, so to speak, that was between Jew and and Gentile, because it included the ordinances that we find in the Old Testament law. Now, you might say, when did they find this out? They didn't start finding this out. They didn't start understanding it until Acts chapter 2. See, the church, as I already mentioned, began Jewish. And so the Jews, of course, they trusted Christ as, let me put it this way, The Jews on the day of Pentecost and the saved Jews that there were already had put their faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. But the idea, the idea that there was going to be one body and we were going to let the Gentiles into this with us, they had a hard, hard time accepting that. This mystery of the church was in the plan and the mind of God, but he had not shared it with mankind. Now, I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, you know what that kind of reminds me of? Most of you weren't here when all this happened. This building we're in, this auditorium that we're in, this auditorium, I don't like drawing attention to it, but now that I'll do it, you can look at it one time, then be done with it. You notice there's a seam 
there about midway. Do you see it? There's a seam in the ceiling. We tried to cover it as best we could. They told us it would never show. And of course, so much for that. Anyway, that was the end of the building. In other words, if you went there and you put a wall, I preached just on the other side of that. The room was 50 by 50. And for years, that was the auditorium. Now, when we decided to expand, that was still there. If you came in the auditorium, that's all you saw. But you know what? We were doing something else. We were building the rest of this structure in expansion, you might say. We were building the rest of the structure behind that. But if you were here worshiping with us, when it was still 50 by 50 inside, you couldn't see what was behind We weren't trying to hide it. It's just that you couldn't see it. But it was in our plan. Now the day came, and I remember it like it was yesterday. We had our oldest daughter got married. It was either on Friday or Saturday. Do you remember? Friday or Saturday. It was one or the other. And that was in the 50 by 50 building. I think it was Saturday. We had church on Sunday and after the morning service because... It was all enclosed. It was ready to be tied together. After the morning service, I took a sledgehammer. And I went, it was right over there. I went and I took that sledgehammer and I whacked a hole in that wall. And starting the next day, the wall came down and revealed the structure. I broke down the middle wall. And what happened? Oh, now we could easily see what we were up to. Okay, guess what, folks? When Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins, he took care of the middle wall. He had something new in store, and it was this thing called the body of Christ, this thing called the church. He abolished it, the wall. Ephesians 2, verse 16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity there by. One body, Jew and Gentile being one. This was an extremely difficult concept for the early church to accept. That's why in Acts chapter 10, before God sent Peter to go talk to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, Jews didn't talk to Gentiles. No, no. But God, see, he had something else going on. The church had begun, but the Jews had to be eased into it to understand this. And so before Peter was going to go meet Cornelius, God gave him a vision. There was this sheet that came down and it had clean and unclean, according to Jewish law, animals in it. Now, Peter being Peter, the Lord had to show it to him three times. But I'll tell you what, folks, when he got it and he actually told the Lord, I'm not eating those unclean animals. I'm a Jew. And God said, don't you call unclean what I've called clean. See, the Lord already understood the church. It's Peter who didn't understand it. But ah, as time went on, and then Paul came on the scene. And then, of course, it would, Paul, of course, gives us very clear teaching here in Ephesians and also in Romans and also in Galatians about this issue of the one body being made up of Jew and Gentile. Peter had to be convinced, but man alive, when he got convinced and when he saw it, yes, Lord, 
And he went and he met with Cornelius and Cornelius was sitting there with his family. And he says, basically, will you tell us how to be saved? And that's what you see in Acts chapter 10. Those weren't the exact words, but that's what happened. Galatians 3.26, it says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Who is the ye? Jew and Gentile. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, that's what makes up the body of Christ. That is the church. Now, by the way, that being true, that should completely do away with any anti-Semitism in the world. Those who are against the Jewish people. But you know what, folks? Anti-Semitism is growing globally. And you see, this fits into the last day scenario because the tribulation period, which is just around the corner, the church will be taken out first, but the tribulation period is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. So more and more persecution of the Jewish people, that's going to ramp up as we get closer and closer to the tribulation period. And it will be awful for the Jews. Now back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17. It says, And and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, the Gentiles, and to them that were nigh, the Jews. For through him, through Christ, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Our next point is he is our access to the Father. Verse 18, it is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit aids us, but Jesus opened up the way. Verse 19, now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. You Gentiles, you're on equal footing now with the Jews. And you Jews, you're on equal footing with the Gentiles. Because we're all one body in Christ. Verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now listen carefully. Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. We see that in verse 20. The apostles and prophets, how is it that they're built? The apostles and prophets laid the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, by their teaching and their preaching. It was all about Jesus Christ. They're not the foundation. Jesus is the foundation. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ. Even Peter said in 1 Peter 2.16, he says, wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Peter understood. He was just a little pebble. Jesus was the rock. It's upon the rock, the truth of the gospel. It's upon that that the church is built. It's not built on Peter. Verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, the good news is this today, and we've covered a lot of ground. I'm sure everybody got every point exactly. We covered a lot of ground. Here's the point, though, folks. If you are saved by the grace of God, you are part of the body of Christ. And I don't know about you, but when I find Jewish believers today, 
I just love meeting them for many reasons. One is, is I feel a real link because of we are one in Christ, but the promised Messiah that was promised to them is both of our Messiah today. He's their Messiah. He's our Savior, but that's all the same person. Now, if you're here and you're not sure where you're going when you die, you can be part of the body of Christ today. You can be a believer. You can have heaven as your home. One last verse. Let me show this to you. In 1 John chapter 5, in verse 13, it says this. It says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, Jesus. His name means God who is our Savior. Emmanuel. In a, well, not exactly, but it's the same person. When you believe in Jesus, you're believing that he is God who will save you. If you trust in Christ, it says, you may know that you have eternal life. Look at that. You can know that you have eternal life. Do you know you're going to heaven when you die? I hope you do. If not, you can know today if you'll simply believe that Jesus has paid for all of your sins. You're putting your faith in him as your way to heaven. Not in yourself at all but completely in what he did for you. And if you'll trust in him, he'll save you. Would you do that today? Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.